I'm Elaine Casket, and this is your Life on Tech. This week kicks off the first of 10 installments connected to my new book, which is Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. Reboot's out on the 31st of August, 2023 in the UK, and it takes you on what I hope is a thoughtful whistle-stop tour through the whole of the human lifespan. We often feel helpless, I think, in the face of all this rapidly evolving tech, like we're the victims and tech is the persecutor. In Reboot and in this podcast, I show how we consistently underestimate our power and agency in the virtual environment, and I look at how we can stop sleepwalking through it all. A lot of us may have defaulted to autopilot and our response to the tech in our lives, but there is an alternative. You can be more deliberate, mindful, and empowered in your relationships with tech and in the relationships you have through technology. To help me explore the themes from each chapter, I'll be talking to some of the sources I interviewed for this book, as well as to some of the folks I didn't get a chance to talk to the first time around. So without further ado, here is the first of 10 Reboot podcasts, and it's about the chapter on digital gestation. You'll hear from me and four other people in this podcast, all of those people featured in chapter one of Reboot. Psychologists like me don't usually include gestation in the map of the psychological and social human life. Gestation deals, after all, with the period of time when someone's still part of someone else's body. There's something physical there, but as far as the emerging social self is concerned, that's an idea. It's a construction, maybe even a curation. The future baby's community engaged together in this online collective shaping and fantasizing and hoping about what and who this little human will do, what they will be, what they will like. They get excited about not just what sex the child will be, but they think about gender too. Two of the powerful ways that we curate a digital personality for a future baby online include sharing the sonogram on social media and capturing and sharing a so-called gender reveal party, which began with cutting into a cake to reveal blue or pink sponge and over time evolved into increasingly dangerous and occasional fatal rituals. When I was expecting my own child, I did the first thing. I shared the sonogram on Facebook. A lot of other people were doing it, and I felt like doing it too. The gender reveal is not something that we did, although I know plenty of others who did it, including an acquaintance from high school that we'll hear from later in this episode. But first, let's hear from the person who popularized the gender reveal phenomenon, which some might argue is simply a fun and harmless way of introducing a soon-to-be child to the world. Well, it was never supposed to really be about gender in the first place. Whenever I had my party, I was not actually thinking it through, which is just after the parties became popular and after I started to see the implications of them, I really started to think it through. She was a blogger at the time. She lives on the West Coast of the U.S., and her name is Jenna. And realized, you know, wow, we're really celebrating something that's actually not even really important, and it's certainly not even evident at birth. I mean, it's like celebrating, you know, what their favorite ice cream is or something. You know, you can't really know that at at birth. You can only know, like, what their, their body parts are. But 
whenever I started my party, it was really, um, it was to get my family more involved. You know, I was trying to up the ante, you know, my in-laws are really great, his side, but uh, they had just had a baby on that side. My sister-in-law just had a baby and they were kind of babied out and all the attention was on that brand new, very cute baby. And here I am just sitting there with a belly, like, you know, let's try to, let's try to get this party started. And then my family, they're just completely checked out. So then I'm having a baby. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, we're going to, we'll have a party and that'll get, that'll get you here. She likes to party. Um, that'll like lure her here. And I just really, you know, you just want your mom. You just want your, your, sure. you just want everybody to be, you want your village. And so my village was, they needed a boost. So it was never about gender for me. You're finally in a place where you can know something like, oh my gosh, we had the anatomy scan. And um, the way it went viral and way, the way all that happened was just a really right place at the right time type yeah. of thing, which I think most viral things are. It was a moment, um, I was an early adapter to social media. So I had, you know, a blog since like, I believe it was even my first blog was even like 99 or something. It was so long ago. That's um, early. Yeah. yeah. And I, I shuttered them. I would, I would have them for a while, but then like they would get popular and then I would shut them down because to your point and to your whole thing. Mm. I don't like that digital footprint. There's no way to erase that. And Mm. so I would be, I had like my dating years, like my single blog. And I would just write about the stuff with dating. And like, I don't need that on, I'm sure if you went to the Wayback Machine, you could dig up all kinds of dirt off (laughs) you. Yeah, there's always the Wayback Machine. So that was that, that shutting it down, kind of a reeling it back kind of instinct that you had so that you would like sort of draw certain chapters of your life to a kind of close under a way that you were trying to exert control over. Absolutely. So then I guess it was a time when I got married. Then I started the the new blog, which was sometime, you know, that more like moving on chapter in my life. And by that point I had a big following. I mean, I had as much as a following as anybody's going to have at that time. It was kind of like that, that era. And so, yeah, I had, I had a bit of a a following and, you know, I posted about the party before I was going to have it. And I didn't post about my struggles. Like, Oh, I wish my mom was involved. Like I didn't get deep like that. It was more just like, and here's the stroller that I'm thinking about getting. And here's me, you know, you're, it was, it wasn't like real deep, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, people, they enjoyed seeing the, I, I had like the progression pregnancy photos and, you know, that was all new. Yeah. At that time. And so then, um, what happened was after the post went viral, it was sort of like a meta kind of situation because, um, I was contacted <laughs> by a magazine called the bump, which is not overseas. It was just in the United States. And, um, they asked to do like a spread, so I kind of joke that's my only time as a centerfold. Most of it was just pictures of like my pregnancy and me. And there was one of me in labor and delivery. And um, about a quarter of one of the pages was all about this party. And what happened was just as luck happened is that that magazine that it was published in ended up being that free magazine that they hand out to all the doctor's offices. Uh... So other women are going in for their own scans in the middle of their pregnancies and they're going in and they're sitting down and we didn't use to scroll on our smartphones back then. It was like, you picked up the magazine yeah, right to the center. And it was like, Oh, I there's an idea as soon as I go home. And so that's how it got like, you know, perpetuated. So from what Jenna's saying here, this, like so many other things on the internet or in the digital world we live in, is a tale of unintended consequence. You start out doing something with perhaps really personal motivations and it morphs and translates and rolls into something else entirely, gets taken out of your hands, 
gets interpreted by the community in various ways in a way that can take you really far from the original motivations and drivers and intentions. You know, people are always, I mean, since time immemorial, I've been like, is it a boy or a girl? It's the only question that they ask. So I don't yeah. think there's any part of the, I didn't invent, you know, that yeah. focus on, on no, gender indeed. at all. But it was more of the fact that, you know, it kind of started to replace the baby shower because this is also when people were trying to find ways to make like co-ed showers, co-ed mm-hmm. baby showers, trying to get fathers more involved. Mm. And as we've kind of come on an evolution of it, it was like a big moment for stay-at-home dads yeah. right around at that point. And, you know, it's continuing still. It's it's a struggle for equality with parenting all the time. But um, that's when the internet was kind of getting their teeth into this type of thing. And so it was pivoting from the baby shower being the main party to now it was a, a family affair. Uh, and with that has then grown a cake isn't good enough and people are exploding things. Yeah. <laughs> One of the you know? big, one of the videos that made a big impression on me was a guy I went to high school with, and he was an NFL football player back in the day. I've given this gentleman the pseudonym of Martel for the book and for the third part of this podcast, when you'll be hearing directly from him and from his wife, whom I'm calling Jada. And uh, he showed a video of their gender reveal party where there were the balloons, yeah, and they exploded the thing. And then the he'd had two girls with a previous partner, and he'd finally gotten this boy that he's a very like man's man, like football player, like jock sort of type, right? And when those blue things came out of that balloon, the guy went absolutely like mental, just like leaping around like it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And then that sort of had that kind of succession of thing after that, where he sort of started shaping his expectation of what this kid was going to be like, you know, sort of like, you know, really kind of emphasizing all of the very sporting aspects and making explicit statements about what he was going to be into, what he wasn't going to be into. And I was like, wow, this is really powerful. We always communicate our kind of, we always nurture our hopes or we always kind of hope that we're going to be able to relate to our kid on something that we might really like. But then the whole community would sort of also kind of reinforce that. And I was just thinking, what if this kid is not like that? What if he's into others? And then there's this thing where he kind of sees the strength of that expectation or hope that this is what he's going to be. And that's all been kind of curated or crafted, that expectation, not just by the dad, but like with the cooperation of all the community, Mm -hmm. you know, that know that family. And I thought that's pretty powerful. You know, but it yeah, all started yeah. with that exploding balloon and then it kind of was pedal to the metal from there. People are just kind of deciding entire personalities for yeah. their children before they're even there. I first heard of Jenna when I read an article in The Guardian in the UK and the headline was, I started the gender reveal party trend and I regret it. I'm presuming that it was kind of a process for you in terms of rethinking and restoring and kind of feelings about this changing over a period of time? Or was there a kind of penny dropping moment where you're like, hold on a second, like I need to sort of say something about this trend, I guess, why that moment where you thought, actually, I want to put my position out there more formally that I'm not, I don't think this is cool. Well, it's when I was dug up as being the gender reveal inventor. I didn't, I didn't stand up and go, Hey, I invented the gender reveal party and I've got something to say. That's actually not what happened at all. Oh, so you were responding to being, I was responding positioned as that. Um, somebody on Twitter who I didn't even see the original tweet. They were like, one of these gender reveal accidents happened. And they said, I want, I want to know the history of the gender reveal. I want to know who's responsible who, who started it. And then one of my followers followed them and was like, Oh, Hey, 
<laughs> I've got your girl. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I was, I just presented our family photo for our Christmas card. And I was like, it's kind of funny that this is coming up. And everybody thought it was my son in the middle of the card. And it was actually my daughter who, mm-hmm. you know, she had short hair, wears tuxedos, you know, and then that's how it kind of went like mega viral is then people were like, oh, wait a minute. This actually doesn't have like homophobic roots. It was just not even about that at all. Oh my gosh. Well, it gotten translated or interpreted in all sorts of different ways that like, yeah. So, so you, you have one intention, you have your position and then you get like narrated or storied by all of these people who are like making assumptions with pieces of information. It could have very easily been someone else. I mean, I think it was just the type of thing that it's just an idea. It was like calculus was invented in two places in the world at the same time. I think anybody else could have done it. Yeah. And I'm actually as much stress as it has caused me, I mean, I've you know really shed a lot of tears. I mean, when the when the forest burned down the first time, I was like just bawling. I was like, oh my god, you know. There have been a handful of large fires that have been sparked in the United States by explosions from gender reveal devices. I knew that I was the creator or whatever, but I didn't. I just kind of kept that to myself. And I cried when I saw the forest fires. Um, and then after the, it went viral and I was brought into the mix on Twitter, um, now I, I see it, even though it has been very stressful and a lot to deal with, I, I see it as an opportunity. So mm-hmm. if I can use this opportunity to make something better of it, then I'm glad it was me. Yeah, it gets to the kind of creation of these expectations and these norms or whatever, because that's what that high school friend that I mentioned is doing. And it's something and that will sit there. Too, you know, I mean, that yeah. man that has probably been told his whole life, you're a football player, you'd be a man. I felt awkward asking Jenna about whether she'd profited from either the invention of the gender reveal party or from any of the controversy that followed later. It turned out I didn't have to ask the question because Jenna actually addressed it herself. I myself haven't monetized any of it. I mean, I get mm. thrown a lot of like opportunities, this or that, but I just, you know, I have other focus, focuses yeah. now. I don't even write my blog anymore. I'm in law mm. school. I'm really just, I speak when I, when I have the chance. I'm not, I'm not out to promote anything or sell anything. So when I'm saying what I'm saying, it's really from the heart, you know. This is such a fraught area. There's so much judgment in it. On one hand, we're encouraged to share things, reinforced for doing so. And on the other hand, we get criticized and shamed for it. It just feels like a very complicated space. Now I want to bring in a voice from academia. I'll be introducing him in a moment, but it's somebody that works with both ends of identity, the very beginning and the very end. I wanted to ask him about not just gender reveals, but also about another bit of data that's commonly shared on social media, data concerning the as yet unborn. And that, of course, is sonograms. My name is Tom Lieber. I'm a professor of internet studies. How did I get into this specific area where we're talking about especially very young people and their data? Um, it's an inter- quite a convoluted route, but I guess uh, I was interested in the fact that all of the writing and theory around social media and all of the stuff written by platforms was all about the user of social media being this very active, purposeful adult agent who, if there was a problem, the answer was give them more tools, give them more settings. They can make informed decisions for themselves. That's how we fix everything. And I guess initially I was just really interested in the what about all of 
all of the spectrum of human life where there are, you know, especially at the beginnings of life and at the ends of life, people really can't make those informed choices. Who Who's responsible then? And, and do we have any mechanisms for that? And the, the, the original answer was no. As my children were born, I guess I became more and more interested going, well, looking at all of the the practices around that, looking at the sharing practices, looking at the rituals of sharing ultrasounds, but even the evolution of technology, like just in the space of a decade, we went from, I think we were probably the last people in the entire world to get the offer of a VHS cassette tape of an ultrasound. That's Tama Lever. He's a professor of internet studies at Curtin University in Perth, Western Australia, and he's been through the ultrasound drill with four kids. So I think it's part of that ritual that there was, there's always been a, we know you want to hold on to this memory, on what platform do we provide it? The option was a VHS tape, um, and by the time we got to the, the, the final ultrasound, they'd already upgraded, so it was the burnt CD. Then it was... Um, that it was a USB stick, I think, for the middle two. And then by the time my fourth was born, it was like, here's a, a basically a, a bespoke social media platform for your ultrasound images. And yeah, it was 100% pushed by the clinic that was doing it. And it was that was the only option. Yes, they can still print one or two hard copies, but really they're like, oh, you don't really want to do that. We'll send you everything. Um, and they really do like it was, you know, you got the full sort of 15 minute video and it's like, do I really want this much? I'm not sure I can do much with that. But, you know, it, it was all there. But it was also set up for sharing. It wasn't just you can get this thing, but it was like it's one click to send this on to other people. And I think that's what was interesting about that sort of architectural change. first met Tama Lever because of our mutual interest, which is what happens to your data when you die and how the dead live on online. When I wrote my book, All the Ghosts in the Machine, one of the final chapters ended up in a place that I didn't expect when I started the project. I found myself talking about the digital footprint of my own child, the one that I'd constructed, and how by sharing information about her online during her childhood, I was assuming a really powerful role in not just shaping her personality, but determining at least partly what her eventual digital legacy was gonna be. And that's where Tama's research really comes in. As the title of one of his papers says, he's interested in visualizing the ends of identity. You know, Tama, I remember my own interest in this being awakened quite a lot when I was a new parent, observing what other people were doing on social media. But it's so interesting that even though I was an expert around digital stuff and privacy at the time, stuff about the other end of life, as a besotted new parent and also an expat who was very far from family and friends, I mean, I was very unreflective or unselfcritical about my sharing, about my infant's information, about my early experience of parenthood, because I think it had significant rewards and reinforcements for me. I mean, I I don't know if I would have used it in the same way if I'd still been close to my family of origin at that time. Mm. I mean, I think think that that point in life, though, is exactly the time when you most want to share and you're least likely to think through the consequences of that, you know, years down the track. You're very much in the moment. And I think that's one of the 
the challenges in this space is getting to people so they've front-loaded that thought process before they see that first ultrasound or something is actually really tricky because there might be opportunities maybe after, say, a child's born, that's the point where you might go, okay, in Australia at least, everybody gets handed this ridiculously large book, which is like, here's all the things about childhood. Um, take it home and have a read. You might need it. Um, and, you know, you might be able to slip a page into that about social media or something like that. But to some extent, it's, it's those earlier bits uh, ultrasound sharing, the dreaded gender reveal party, if, if you are so inclined, things like that where the initial parameters of sharing are all sort of set up. Um, and once you start sharing that stuff, it's really hard to turn around and go, oh, now my beautiful baby is born. I'm not going to show you. You know, you just don't really do that. So I think those establishing those norms is really tricky to do in advance. And it's usually parents who have got a kid or two kids who are like, oh, I wish I'd thought about this earlier. And, and I was exactly the same. I think when my oldest was born, I think I'd, I was blogging still back then. And I actually read a blog post with, here's a picture and here's his full name. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I gave that all away when he was you know, a couple of days old. That I, in retrospect, I can see why that was a terrible idea. Oh, absolutely. And, and we'll get to some of the reasons why that might be a terrible idea in a minute. But you just mentioned one of the major two ways I think that kids get profiles online before they even emerge into the light. We were talking about a sonogram a minute ago, but then yes, as you say, the dreaded gender reveal party about which I know you have some opinions and so do I, but maybe explain to the uninitiated if there is any uninitiated person left who doesn't know what a gender reveal party is, what that is. Oh, there are definitely the uninitiated. They're relatively odd still in Australia. I don't think they're the norm here at all. Um, but a gender reveal party is basically when... Uh, expectant parents uh, gather friends and they they will at that party hopefully not already know although sometimes they do the gender of the uh, child that they're going to have and usually it's in some fairly contrived way it might be a white cake that you cut into and you discover is it blue or is it pink in the middle or you pop balloons or you do something and in that moment surrounded by friends and family you um, suddenly discover the gender of your child and share that moment with family and friends in this sort of um, ritual where the very first identity marker is this, this new person will be gendered this way and identity therefore can begin. Um, and, I mean, it's a, it's a very strange ritual. I mean, that seems to have... Um, weird connotations now i think there was a massive bushfire on the back of somebody's gender reveal party in the u.s or something i don't really understand tam is correct there was a massive bushfire somewhere in america not just the sawmill fire but also the lethal el dorado blaze and an assortment of other tragedies an inadvertent pipe bomb novelty signal cannon a plane that pitched into the sea with its doomed cargo of two pilots and a sign reading it's a girl one expectant father never made it to the party because the unspecified contraption he was preparing detonated as he tinkered with it in the garage. As the trend burgeoned, it was fueled by clips shared on social media, and people found increasingly creative and occasionally fatal ways to not settle for cake. In one video, a group of people aim their smartphones at a curious trio, expectant dad, his heavily pregnant partner, and an elderly pet alligator called Sally. Someone hands over an apparently intact watermelon, and the man expertly tilts Sally's head upwards, tossing the melon into her gaping mouth, and the beast's jaws snap reflexively shut, spewing arcs of blue goo towards the delighted onlookers. 
Um, it, it is does seem to be sort of like escalating warfare. My gender reveal party was so good, we took out a third of California, which may or may not be a claim to fame. Um, but yeah, it is one of those weird rituals. And, and I guess gender is one of those challenging things where even though we sort of accept that gender isn't a binary, it's a spectrum and all sorts of things, the absoluteness of is it a boy or is it a girl is still the first question which people sort of need an answer to to start thinking of this entity as a person. Yeah, because of course, what's technically being revealed is what the scans or the tests are revealing about the child's sex. But in the whole performance of the gender reveal party conducted within the community of family and friends and so forth, the gendering process, the stamping of a particular gender identity on this yet-to-be-born person starts to take place. I shared with Tama the same story of the guy I'm calling Martel, the one with the joyfully unhinged gender reveal party for his soon-to-be son, the one that he hoped would one day become a famous American football player. Yeah, that, that, that kid, when they, they failed to get into the high school football team, will be sitting in the shed watching that video from 14 years ago, terrified of telling their parents what actually happened. Yeah. So these are really early. We're talking about the kind of relational difficulties, potentially, within a family or identity issues involved for a particular child who's been gendered in this huge celebratory gender reveal performative way. What we're not talking about yet, and what I'd love for you to talk about is, okay, so you post a sonogram online, and maybe you do have the baby's full name on there. Where's the problem here? Because a lot of people, maybe people who don't understand really how social media and the business and the economics of it all works under the hood might not grasp the difficulty here with what seems like this innocuous, joyful sharing of this fantastic event about to happen. So problematize it for us. Okay. So, I mean, and and the two things are not separate. Like it can be a joyful thing at the same time, but I guess let's just use the example of say posting to Instagram. Let's say you you share the the 12 week sonogram on Instagram. Um, Depending on who you are, you may have just just pulled out the phone and taken a picture of the the screen at the the clinic and and got um, just just a, a bog standard um, sonogram has the mother's name, the date of the scan, the estimated date of birth, the location of the clinic that you're in, and a bunch of other things all on the screen. It has uh, probably the first picture of this sort of um, entity, but all of that, um, one, even if it's in an image form, it's trivial to pull that information back out as text. So all social media platforms process images by firstly saying, is there text in here? Can we pull this out? Secondly, it'll look for metadata. So it'll say, where was this taken? When was this, when was this taken? Where was this taken? What other information can we extract from that? And I guess one of the things people don't really understand about something like Instagram, um, which is owned by Facebook and so sort of does the same backend work, is that as soon as it detects another person or even person not quite yet born, they will start a profile. So Facebook doesn't just profile the people who've elected to have profiles. It has a profile of anyone connected to them and starts to, to gather information and build the idea of, of so who is this? Um, what do we know about them? 
Now, if you can start that profile from even before they're born, then the amount of information you will already have on the system by the time they say turn 13 and can officially um, sign up for Instagram or Facebook or WhatsApp, all of which are connected um, because they're all owned by the same company, then that profile will be so much richer. So what that platform then can do in terms of selling information to advertisers to allow them to do targeted advertising is all all of the hard work to some extent is done before you even sign up. So I guess that's some of the stuff that's happening for young people that we kind of forget is going on. And that's why Facebook's sort of relational map of of families and, and children is so important to the company because it's so valuable because it's not just what's happening today. It's building those really rich profiles into the future. Um, and it's very contextual right now because there's a lot of pushback about does, does Facebook hoover up too many cues? Does, does it look in too many places? Has it got too, many, um, too much reach on the internet? Should we stop sharing as much stuff? And to some extent, Facebook, yes, is fighting some of those battles. But what it's also admitting is we've got so much information now that we actually need less and less and less information to reach the same conclusions about those people. And one of those, those sort of really rich data sources that isn't, is not going away is parents sharing lots of stuff about their kids. And the value of that then sort of pre-formatting the profile of, of that um, young person when they eventually end up using one of these services should not be underestimated. And I think that process is completely invisible to most discussions of Facebook because it's about the active user. It's about, well, I could choose to leave Facebook. That's true. But Facebook doesn't stop knowing stuff about me or anyone related to me, especially my kids. And I think it's that process that's happening largely invisibly. Um, it's, well, it's not completely invisible. You can see it if you look at you know, the, some of the, the, if you do that thing where you download everything Facebook knows about you, there are a whole lot of flags that you know, it knows you're a parent, it knows the ages of your children, things like that. Um, but they're very, very well hidden in terms of the, the everyday experience of the platform. So they have the potential to really understand our kids and their vulnerabilities and their purchasing preferences and everything else in this much more complete way. And that's going to render them vulnerable unless there are different regulations or legislation in place at that time about what it's permissible to do. But also how that information is kept in their system. So for example, you might you know, the, the GDPR might say you're not allowed to store a specific profile of a named kid in this way. But what it might do is just go um, child one through child four of this person have these characteristics. We're not allowed to name the child. We're not allowed to attach that to a specific person, but we can continue to extrapolate over time. And at a certain point, that then becomes legal to start putting that information into or around a named profile. So there might be interpretations of the law where even if it says don't collect data about kids, it's not saying don't collect data and don't you know, no kids exist. What it's saying is don't put those two pieces of information together at this time. It's not necessarily promising that you can't in the future. And maybe that's the intention of the law that it's supposed to prevent that. But whether it does or not is a whole other question. The entire conversation that I had with Tamil Lever was absolutely fascinating. So illuminating. If you're a paid subscriber, you actually can hear the whole of the talk that we had on an earlier edition of this podcast. So please do step back a couple episodes and check it out if you're so inclined. I really encourage you to do so. It'll really open your eyes. 
I'd done so much thinking and talking about gender reveals and sonogram sharing and sharing in the gestational period of a soon-to-be human's life, specifically focusing a lot in some of these discussions, as you've heard, on a high school acquaintance of mine whom I'm calling Martel. He and his partner, whom I'm calling Jada, had publicized a really joyfully unhinged gender reveal on social media and share quite frequently about their growing family online, particularly on Facebook, where I was one of the many people following along. I thought it was only fair that I talked to these parents themselves and get a bit of perspective on how they thought about their social sharing about their kids and their family, including the period of time before their two boys arrived on the scene. One probably truly positive thing from social media is that now we can stay connected with people at a distance who are, you know, far away, very easily, very yeah. easy. So in that regard, you know, like I said, there are some good things about it, but yeah. it's like moderation. It can become addicting. Yeah. And then, you know, you, there's people that you don't even know or pretenders that can reach out to you and communicate mm-hmm. with you. That was the stuff I was worried about with my girls being on social media. Jada is Martel's wife. When we're speaking, she's pregnant with their second boy. You know, most of our family still lives in Indiana, but none of us are in the same cities. So right. my mom specifically, she likes when I post a lot because she gets to, this is my mom's first grandson. So it's a first for her. So she doesn't like that she's not here and, you know, seeing everything that he does. So she likes that when I post that so she can see. Sometimes if I don't post it, She's like, where's my post today? You know, like she wants to see what he's doing every day. Yeah, her her family's really close. So, um, you know, they're pretty hands on and they, you know, they come and see all the time. You know, my family is really not close at all. The, the Facebook has been the tool for me to probably get a little bit closer to them, even though I don't hardly ever see them or wasn't as close or 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 didn't see them that often when I was young. So. Yeah. Like I said, we're not really close. We don't really call each other all the time. Like me and my sister, like never really talk. Well, and she's actually not even on Facebook, but she sees my Facebook through her kids and her daughter and stuff. So so they're on Facebook and she's not, but like, because it's on there, her kids, she sees it. So yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because people have this like stereotype of social media as something like, oh, not quite as close as in real life or whatever, but you're talking about something like if it weren't there, you wouldn't have whatever closest it is that you have yeah, with yeah. them. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah it, it def- even though they might not see my son, they still get to see him grow up. I really relate strongly to what Martel is talking about here. I've often reflected that 
if I hadn't become a mother thousands of miles away from my family of origin. I'm not sure if I would have used social media in the same way. I don't think I would have shared the stuff about my kid that I shared. It was one of my primary drivers before my kid arrived and after my kid arrived in sharing what I did to keep that feeling of connection with faraway friends and family going and to allow them to see my child grow up when they couldn't physically be there. It's just keeping everybody informed about what's going on with my life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if my family, we're kind of like this broken family. So if, if they catch the news and they appreciate it, you know, it makes me feel good that they they know, but I don't really focus on it. I've, I've just grown past it over the years. Okay. So, but I think for her, though, it's probably different, but she can speak to that. Yeah, like I said, they they want to see it. They wait for it for me to put. That's probably why I, I probably post more than he does. I just kind of tag him and everything. So, yeah, I'd probably do it more for my family and, you know, my friends. So a couple of my friends have all had babies around the same time. So I like to see their kids grow up because they live in Chicago. They live in, you know, Illinois somewhere. So they're not close either. So we don't get to see them very often. Yeah, it's just it's just a good way for everyone to keep in touch and to see how we're all doing. These feel like such powerful expressions of the emotional and psychological itches that people, that parents are scratching when they share pictures of their family on social media with people who are far away. Again, I find myself relating so strongly. I wanted that belonging. I wanted that connection. I wanted that participation in one another's lives, just like Martel and Jada are describing here. For a while in the conversation, we kind of drift away from the prenatal gestation period sharing and the gender reveal stuff. And we start talking about the sharing that goes on a little bit later as the kids are growing up. I talked to them about some of the reasons why I decided to stop sharing some of that information after a conversation with my kid, which I'm going to be talking about in a future episode. And Martel goes kind of reflective about the potential downsides. It's almost kind of like we're, I mean, they're kids, but we're almost not respecting their privacy, maybe. I, I don't know. Kind of, you know, like we're revealing so much about them. And we're really not asking this permission, you know what I mean? But he's too young. He's a child. But that's kind of what it's yeah. like, you know. When, when I had my girls, we didn't do that. We didn't have no. a gender reveal. We, we, we found out who, what the sex was, and then we just told everybody. But I think part of ours, the, well, and I'm, maybe I'm wrong, she can correct me, but it was because I had girls for so long. And then, you know, there was this whole thing. It's like, well, what if it's another girl? What are you going to do? And so there was this anticipation we had kind of built up because I had so many, you know, it was just girls around me. And it's like, oh, no, is he going to have another girl? I went, phases, though. I went through phases, though, because I was like begging and basically praying for a boy and then mm. you know i kind of at the end of it i was kind of like you know i just want a healthy baby i don't care if it's you know if it's a girl it's a girl i'll do it he just had to say that out loud right even with this one he acted like he didn't care if it was a girl or a boy with this one but deep down he wanted another boy the second one was a little more mild we didn't do we just had a like my a couple of people over the house and we did something real small so the second one we actually found out and we just told everyone else through like balloons like we opened up a little box of like balloons and like the blue ones came out the first time we didn't know 
her sister. My sister was the only one who knew. She her, went to my ultrasound appointment with me and they told her. Yeah, that's why he was so excited. It's no secret that everybody knows that I'm like, you know, this big sports fanatic. Just We've had discussions, though, about, well, what if he's, you know, don't want to play sports? What if he's gay? I mean, we've had those conversations. You know, we at the end of the day, we're going to love him no matter what. But do we have our like hopes and dreams of him being this super athlete stud? You know, absolutely we do. We are no different than most parents who, you know, have these dreams and hopes and somewhat still live through their children. You know, for me, for me, you know, I had a, a, a decent sports career. But now a lot of people don't know is that I feel like I didn't quite reach the level that I should have. And now most people don't know that, but I would like to see him eclipse anything I've done. You know, it's like, OK, I didn't make it. I want him to make it, you know, and, and if he doesn't, you know, I'm still going to love him no matter what. In my, I would be lying if I said I didn't want him to to be this great stud athlete that everybody looked up. I'd be lying. But am I going to be disappointed? No. At this point in the conversation, I'm feeling so glad that I talked to them, that I talked to Martel and Jada, because I'd been focusing so much, as hard as I tried to come from that non-judgmental place, I'd been so concerned about the potential effects, some of the effects that Tama talked about with me, things that I'd reflected on for myself, that I'd probably fallen into a position of being a bit judgy about Martel and about what felt like such pressure and such expectation. And he holds his hands up to it. He says that it's there, but his expression of why it's there and his explanation of what this is all about for him and what the potential future sporting success of a son might mean to him. I just have so much more empathy for him. I feel really moved by this account. And I can't help but think that if his future and current son understand what I'm now in this moment able to understand about where their dad is coming from, maybe they won't feel the pressure that I was afraid they would feel. Maybe they will. But all I can say is, is that something has changed in this moment. Something shifted and transformed my understanding of what Martel's reaction to the gender reveal and his sharing of the gender reveal was all about. I'm an athlete, yeah. She played college volleyball. She went to a division. So we're both athletes. Yeah, Yeah, but, you know, so my experience is I almost sometimes wish I didn't play sports because there were a lot of other things that I probably could have been doing too. Sports was good, you know, as far as being social and active and, you know, staying in shape and, you know, you know, connecting with friends and stuff like that. But there were also some other things that I enjoyed. I always enjoyed art and stuff. And sometimes my mom always asked me, you know, sometimes do you wish you didn't play volleyball? Do you wish? And sometimes I say, yes, like I did like to travel and all the, you know, stuff that came along with playing volleyball, but it consumed our whole lives. When I was young, my mom would ask me, she'd be like, are you going to be a professional football player? And I would say, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was like nine or 10 years old. For me personally, she had the desire that I would end up playing, playing professional football. And, you know, I just picked up on it naturally as well. Now, maybe it was because I was brainwashed by her. I, I don't know. I, I, uh, you know, she just always loved watching football. 
And I just think for, for us, for the black community, I mean, it's obvious that a lot of, you know, success is comes from the sports arena. You know, my mom stressed academics. Don't get me wrong. You know, because yeah. I made straight A's. I made straight A's and Jeff. I don't know if you know that, but but she but yeah. she kind of caught up in the, the 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 societal the you know things that go along like with pressures. Like here's a chance. Here's a way to make it out of the projects. You know, and you know, yeah. I, she I think she latched onto that, and and we just went with it. I, I personally believe that kids, you can't just let them grow up and not give them any direction or put them in different things. Or have, you know, objectives for them. I feel like we have to engage them in things just to help them grow up and, and learn how to operate function in this world. Now, at some point, they can decide, well, I don't want to do this. I don't like it. Not long before this, I'd had my conversation with Tama Lever, and I was talking with Martel and Jada about some of the things that Tama had talked about that surprised me the metadata, the information that could be drawn from posting sonograms, for example, and how much parents know or don't know about the unanticipated potential uses of their children's data now or in the future. We're probably creating some problem that we don't even know about right now. I kind of worry about that identity, identity stuff, identity theft stuff. So I actually signed up me, her and all my kids for this protection that it's like flags anything with their names and their social security numbers. So Martel's got his eyes open about some of the potential financial consequences. There's probably not a lot of parents who have signed their whole family up to the kind of service he's describing there. As far as sharing about his family on social media, he's continued to do it. He continues to voice his hopes and his aspirations and his dreams for his son's future sporting career on social media. Martel has clearly decided that when it comes to sharing things with the community, the benefits feel like they outweigh the drawbacks, at least for now. I think think it feels a void for me family void. And I think meeting her helped fill that in even more. I consider myself a, a very family-oriented person with no oriented family. So for, the family orientation, I, I've always known that it was something that was missing from my life and it was important to me. Um, and so it probably does fill some sort of void like that where I feel like I have this big family and this big community that's interested yeah. in my life. This has been Elaine Casket, and you've been listening to the first of a suite of 10 episodes of This Is Your Life on Tech that are related to my new book, Reboot, Reclaiming Your Life in a Tech-Obsessed World. It's out on the 31st of August, 2023. In most territories, US customers stay tuned. It very well may be available for pre-order where you are right now, so please do have a look. Huge thanks to Jenna, to Tama, to Martel, and to Jada for their invaluable contribution to this chapter on digital gestation. And I look forward to next week when we're going to be talking about infancy. Take care until then.